celebrating um, in the church I grew up in, but it's been a joy to learn more about the season. So again, welcome. We're glad to have you with us as we worship together. Um, also, hello to all the people online. I think we, we fixed everything, so you should be good now. Um, Advent, again, is a season of waiting, of expectation, but it's waiting with not only expectations, but to celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ coming into the world. The, the old prophet said, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, a modern day prophet, I think Eugene Peterson, uh, says it like this. He says, Jesus is flesh and blood, God taking on flesh and blood, but moving into our neighborhood. Advent also points to not just the first coming of Jesus, but the early Christians called it Perusia, and they called it Adventus. They also thought about the return of Jesus. So when Jesus comes again, so if we want the full meaning of Advent, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a 12th century um, early Christian, kind of put it like this, and he kind of codified it for the whole church, I think, because he says Advent is a reminder that Jesus comes in flesh. Jesus will come in our hearts for those who believe, and one day Jesus will come again in glory. Around here, we go through four pretty familiar themes when it comes to Advent. Our themes are hope, peace, joy, and love. For hope, we say this is the, the idea of trusting in God fully, for God is good, for God is faithful, for God is true. For peace, we talk about shalom, which is this concept of Jesus and God making things right. Not in our eyes, but in God's eyes. For joy, we don't only talk about the feeling of joy, but we go back to this idea of God has not only blessed us, but God has called us and reminds us to celebrate his blessings. And that's what true joy looks like. And then for love, we just look at Christ. Look at our Jesus coming and saying in Jesus coming, we have Christ coming to us, Christ inviting us to live inside of us, Christ dying for us, and Christ being with us. So we celebrate Advent, and the first, uh, my first year as senior pastor, we kind of looked at the ladies of Advent. You know, we focused on their story as they wrapped in with this Christmas story. Then last year, we kind of did their male counterparts. So where Mary was year one, we did Joseph, year two. Anna and Simeon, um, Elizabeth and, and Zechariah. Well, this year we're going to start something a little bit different. We're going to actually look at the four, this is the next four years, so get ready. You can write this down, right? But for the next four years, we're actually just going to go through the Gospels. So this year we're going to be looking at this Christmas story, but specifically from Matthew's pen, specifically from how Matthew unearths this story. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I'll be reading the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. And to begin, um, like I like to do on Advent Sunday of Hope, I want to have our uh, opening prayer is actually Mary's Magnificat, which is the song of Mary adapted a little bit. So that'll be our opening prayer as we think about what it means that Jesus comes to give us hope. Let's pray together. Our souls glorify the Lord and our spirit rejoices in God, our savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servants. From now on, all generations will be blessed for the mighty one has grown great things for us. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their most inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servants and his people Israel. 
remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants of faith forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Amen. And now we'll go to the scripture reading, which is again will be Matthew 1, 1 to 17, and you can also follow it up front here. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Now Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. What's fascinating is that for most of us, when we open up the New Testament, we're shocked to see this genealogy. And for most of us, maybe we've read it once. For some of us, maybe that's the first time we've ever read all of it. A lot of times what we do is we see this genealogy and we just brush it over. But the genealogy is important because as Matthew is writing this biography of Jesus, this is where he chooses to believe. Matthew is writing to tell the story of Jesus being the anointed one. Israel hoped for a Messiah that would come, that would lead them out of oppression, that would be the one who fulfilled all of God's promises, that would rule on the throne. And Matthew is making the case that Jesus is the only one, and Jesus is the right one, and Jesus is the anointed one. The second case that Matthew is making, though, is that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. That even from his genealogy, from his birth story, from his origin, from his genesis, if you will, that Jesus had come for the world. In looking at his history, in looking at his ancestors, in looking at how God had worked, how God had moved, Matthew is making the case that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is actually the Savior of the world. That Jesus, later on in Matthew, is going to be greater a teacher than Moses. Moses was the one who led them to the promised land. Moses was the one who goes up on a mountain and gives them the law. Jesus is going to go up on his mountain and give them a new law or, or the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is not just going to lead them to a physical earthly promised land, but to the heavenly land of eternal life with God. But the other part that Matthew is going to teach is balancing that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is coming to be the Savior of the world. Is Jesus is the Son of Man. A humble title that points us to this idea that Jesus is coming, giving up all of heaven, 
emptying himself of all his power, submitting and moving and becoming flesh and blood, moving into our neighborhood. Why? So that he can give his life for us all. Now, while most of us skip over this genealogy, or we find it very, you know, um, just overbearing or just like extra, or just like we don't need to do it, what we have to understand is that for every one of Matthew's audience, hearing this name would have been impressive. It would have been compelling. It would have been amazing. They would have heard this as kind of like the Hall of Fame roll call. They would have heard it as like, oh my goodness, this is the history of God for our people. This is the history of God for the world. Oh wow, remember the story of Abraham, how God called him and created us a people. Remember the story of David. Oh man, he was our greatest king. Remember the story of Zerubbabel. Oh man, he's the one who led us out of Babylon and into the new world and try to rebuild. Remember Jehoshaphat, remember Josiah. They heard all of this and they would be amazed that as they look at their history, they could not be physically there if it wasn't for God who worked through all these generations. So for them, it was not just a boring list of names. For them, it was, look, God has been faithful. Look, God has worked for generations. Look, God has surprised us time and time again. Look, our God is good. Our God is faithful. Our God is true. These were just not names to them. These were stories of God's goodness. These were stories of hope. And Matthew picks 14, 14, 14 on purpose because he's trying to point them to who is the hope realized in? And he's going to make the case that it's in Jesus Christ. And this genealogy, this family tree, looking at Jesus' beginning, Jesus' origin, Jesus' genesis, Matthew's first claim that he's making is that, oh my goodness, this child that was born, this Jesus that you knew, the one who lived, the one who loved, the one who died, this Jesus is the rightful king is the rightful son of David. Now, for most of us, we hear that, and that's a cute biblical title. But remember who he's speaking to, an oppressed people, a people under the thumb, the thumb of Rome, a people who even saying that Jesus is the rightful king could invite death, could invite oppression, more oppression. It was a radical statement to say that Jesus is the rightful king, that I see you, Herod, but you're never going to be our king. You don't have the blood. You don't have the promises. You don't have the story. You don't have the ancestors. You don't have the legacy. You don't have the heritage. You are not our inheritance. Jesus is the rightful son of David. Jesus fulfills God's promises. I mentioned the 14, 14, 14. And what's interesting is that if you compare, because this is what you do in your spare time, right? If you compare the genealogy from Matthew and Luke, they're different. And one of the common explanations is that Matthew says Jesus is such the king, if you trace it through, you know, his adopted father Joseph, you'll see his king line. And then you got to Luke, and Luke says Jesus is such the rightful king that it doesn't matter if you go through his mom or his dad, you will still see he traces through the rightful king line. What's interesting about Matthew is if you compare not him to Luke, but to what we have in the Old Testament of all these people that lived, you'll realize that Matthew kind of on purpose skipped some people to keep it 14, 14, 14. Why is that? Well, the first reason is because in the Hebrew, the, the, the three letters that, that, that spell David, 
right, adds up to 14. So that's the first explanation. If you match up like what's our equivalent of D, you know, um, and then it's, it's really D, well, whatever. The, four, the three letters in the Hebrew add up to 14 if you correspond with that. So what he's saying here is that not only is he the son of David, but I will show you how perfectly he is the son of David. There's another theory, though, that instead of looking at it as three sets of 14, it's better to look at it as six sets of seven. And you're like, why is that important? Well, in that culture, to that people, seven was the perfect number. And if I wanted to say who's the most important person in this line, I won't just do three or 14. I will do seven six times. And then the seventh seven will be Jesus Christ. So for them, again, for us, we're just like, this is all tiresome. I don't even get it. It's not that important. But you have to understand for these people, they would say, oh my goodness, Jesus is not only the Messiah. If I counted up 14, year, 14 generations, it points to David, his father. If I counted up seven, I'll have seven different sets. And the six will be all his people and he begins and ends the seventh set. So seven is the perfect number. Seven is the number of God's completion. And Jesus finishes it all. Again, all of us are just like, eh, not a big deal. But to that audience, this was Matthew making the case that Jesus is not only the son of David, not only the son of man, but the son of God. And Jesus' story then is told to three things. He says, from Abraham, who was the father of us all, to David, 14 generations. From David to Babylonian exile, 14 generations. From Babylonian exile to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, 14 generations. I want you to know that through Jesus, we have God fulfilling promises. We have our hopes realized. We have this reminder that God is good. But when you look deeper in the story, it's more than just, you know, really good writing. It's more than just really good formation of family and breakdown of the family tree. When you look at the story, you see there's the other things that are very different about Matthew's version of Jesus' genealogy. In proving that God is faithful today, yesterday, and forever, Matthew always wants to make this point. Matthew also wants to make this point that Jesus' line proves that Jesus is for all of us. And I think that's important because on one hand, he's saying he is the rightful Jewish Messiah. He's the Jew of all the Jews. And then in saying that, though, he says, but remember, his blood also has Gentiles in it. You know, one of the first things to jump out to people is that Matthew list women in this genealogy. And that's not to be glossed over because back then you just didn't list women. They just weren't considered important, so you wouldn't list them at all. So the first thing that jumps out is that Matthew lists women. But when you look at the women Matthew lists, you had Tamar, who was a Canaanite, you had Rahab, who was a Canaanite, but from Jericho. You had Ruth, who was a Moabite. You had Bathsheba, who a lot of scholars think was also um, not a born Israelite, but at the very least, she married Uriah the Hittite. So why is Matthew pointing out all these women? I think it's because not that the women were scandalous, because in all these cases, these women were either taken advantage of because of their situation or until they found God and then started following God. But I think the point that Matthew is making is that God is for all of us. And all of us might have a history, but God can redeem any and all of us. Tomorrow, if you don't remember that story, you know, she was married to one of Judah's son, and God had made the promise to Judah that the king would come from Judah, and Judah's son didn't follow through on the promise. 
and Tamar in trying to save the legacy and trying to hold on to this promise actually pretended to be a prostitute and slept with Judah, her father-in-law. These are not pretty stories. Or, or Rahab, who at very best, we think she's an innkeeper. But if you look at the rest of the biblical thing, they call her a harlot or a prostitute until she finds God and turns her life around. A Ruth, who was a Moabite, a sworn enemy of Israel, but again, a people that was founded from incest. A Bathsheba, who was maybe the most victimized, I think one of the most misunderstood women in all of Scripture. You know, we call her a temptress, forgetting that it's David who used his power, his privilege, his position to take advantage of her. But in all of their stories, God is saying, in spite of what man might want, I am a redeemer. No matter your history, you belong with a seat at my table. No matter what's happened in the past, I can redeem it, and you can even be part of this family. God doesn't really struggle with, are they saints, are they sinners? And if you look at Matthew, he doesn't struggle with, are they good, are they bad? In this genealogy, there's some really bad people too. There's some really bad people who didn't follow God at all, and Matthew seems to be thinking that, no, 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 no. What man might mean for evil, God can mean for good. Whatever history that you have, God can redeem for good. No matter what you think is the lowest and the ter most terrible thing you've ever done, God can not only forgive, but God has a greater plan for your future. And in saying that Jesus' blood includes not the perfect, not the only perfect saints, but includes everyone, Matthew is making the claim that Jesus might be the Jewish Messiah, but he belongs to us all. That whether or not you can trace your history to the Jews in the Middle East, or to the heart of Africa, which is where we all come from anyway, it's true. Or you can trace it if you leave Africa a couple generations, you know, you go to South America or Europe. We all belong to Jesus. Jesus is hope for us all. Jesus welcomes everyone and invites everyone to the seat at his table. And Matthew makes this claim saying that our hope is realized because now is the appointed time that God has chosen his agent, his Messiah, his Savior, his Son to come for us. And the thing I love about these genealogies is that Matthew is making this bold claim that this isn't just Jesus' story, that this isn't just Israel's story. Matthew is making this bold claim that in Jesus, this is our story too. That their story is not just Jesus' story, but it's God's story, and it belongs to us too. So the genealogy is kind of like Matthew's job resume. You know, in some cultures they call it a CV, right? It's kind of Matthew saying, I'm going to give God's resume and show all the way God has been faithful, but all the ways that God's faithfulness points to Jesus. God is good, but his goodness will be fulfilled in Jesus. God is faithful, but our faithfulness will be found perfectly in Jesus. God is love, and that love will be found in Jesus. So if we go back to the list... There's a couple people that I just want to highlight really quickly. First of all, this father Abraham, which everyone listening would have been like, yeah, we're Jews, right? Like, we may be scattered all over the world, but we're Jews. Like, we all come from Abraham. But Matthew says, Abraham got the great promise. 
that his, his, his descendants would number like the stars in the sky. Remember before that, Abraham got the promise when he was 75. Remember he had to wait almost 25 years for the realization of that promise. Remember that Abraham himself, the great man of faith, tried to help God along, if you remember the story, tried to help God along a couple times too much. But God was still faithful to Father Abraham. And how about David? He is our greatest king. Solomon might have gotten all the fruits of David's labor, but David was the man after God's own heart. David was the one who built the, the, the nation as we know it. David is the one through whom God promised that the Messiah will come from your line. David was our king. But the difference between David and Abraham is that for Abraham, every Jew could call him father. Matthew shrinks it a little bit and says, only few could call David father. And this Jesus is royal. We have gone through generations. We have lost our land because of our sin. We've been taken over and split in two as a country. We have been taken over by Babylon and Assyria. We've lost 200 years without having a real king. But this baby Jesus that's coming is the royal heir to the throne. And he talks about that exile in these stories too. 200 years is a long time. You think about us as America, as a country, we're barely over 200 years old. 200 years is a long time. And even further than that, if you want to kind of bring it closer to home to the America example, there are a lot of Jews who consider themselves living under Rome's power as still in the exile because they weren't in the promised land. They had no power. So if you want to use the 1776 to present analogy, the Jews would feel like they're living in a land that should be theirs, but wasn't. That God had kept them in exile because of their sin. And they were waiting for their Savior to come. There had been no Davidic uh, king on the throne. In fact, Herod, who called himself the great, but wasn't great at all, was not even royal. He didn't have Davidic blood. He was a Roman puppet. So for Matthew to write, to tell these people that Jesus is the rightful king was not only a political statement, but it was drawing a line in the sand to say, you may be in exile, but the king of God has come. That Herod might be great in his own eyes, but Jesus is God's son, and that's where your hope should land. The end goal of all of this is Jesus. So whether you look at it as the 14 generations that he curated, or the six versions of seven, and Jesus is the seven seven. Matthew is saying that the climax of the story is Jesus. The child at the end is the one who fulfills the promises. If you want to trust in God, remember, God keeps his promises. Remember, God works not only in your life, but in the lives of all the people who lived before that make you even possible. Remember that God is surprising that those who trust God don't just have one road to God as Jesus, but in your life, God's going to show up in many amazing and surprising ways. Hope in God. Learn to trust him. Look back and be grateful for how God has worked in your story. That's the story of Jesus' genealogy. You know, the book of Matthew is probably best understood as a training manual. 
as something to be studied, not just to say, oh, what does God have to say to me today, but as a training manual to say, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Savior of the world, what can I learn from him to help me work for God's glory and God's kingdom come? Matthew is clear. Jesus fulfills the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish hopes. Matthew is also clear by listing out these names that Jesus is the Messiah for Israel. You know, before Jerusalem falls, every claim that Matthew makes, you can literally, it's almost like their own Wikipedia, right? The temple was their Wikipedia. Every claim that Matthew makes, you can go to the temple and check it. Again, for us, it's just a list of names. Everything that Matthew says, you could fact check it at the temple. But he's not just the Jewish Messiah. He's the savior of the world. And God has this history, this resume of working with all of us. And that should give you hope. Because one of the lies of the devil is to tell you you're not good enough. It's to tell you, you don't have the right skills. You don't have the right temperament. You don't have the right story. It's to tell you that God only wants the people who, who look the best on the outside. It's to tell you that you're useless. It's to paralyze you in the work of the kingdom. But Matthew wants us to be reminded that all of us belong. That all of us got work to do. That all of us can shine for the kingdom. That in Jesus' story, we can have God rewrite our own. And in Jesus' story, we can not only have hope, but we can be reminded that our God is hope. Jesus comes to bring hope. But like everything we'll see about the coming of Jesus, it's not just so we can hold on to it and celebrate it. It's so that we can be so filled with that hope that it bubbles out of us and into our world. Jesus comes to bring hope to you so that you can be his agent. Jesus was God's agent. He's the one everything pointed to. Now Jesus has left you his spirit. He's made you his church, his body, and he's given you that hope so that you can take it to our world so that it bubbles out of you and goes into our world. A couple of years ago, um, a lot, and uh, especially, I would say, the 40 and under. It's a unique community. I'm going to exclude a lot of you except, like, four people, right? In, like, the, I would say the 30 to 40 African-American community, we started kind of really harping on this idea that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And you see it on T-shirts. You see it on, 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 on social media. You, you see it as ideas that our ancestors, if you look at their story, if you look at all they went through, there's no way they could even imagine that we would be here. We are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And I think all of us, you don't have to be 30 to 40 African-American. I think all of us can actually realize that's true, too. You only have to go back. For some of us, it's just one generation. <laughs> But for all of us, you only have to go back three, four generations to see how hard it was for them and to see how they couldn't imagine the life you have now, how they couldn't imagine the freedom you have now, how they couldn't imagine anything from the technology to the, to the blessings to, to even your way of living. They could not imagine all of us are our ancestors' wildest dreams. So this isn't ancestor worship, but it is giving thanks to God. 
Because God's faithfulness to your ancestors has allowed you to be here. God working in their story has made it possible for you to exist. And I think in our culture, you know, we kind of look down upon, you know, non-Western culture, whether it's Africa or Asia, and we say, oh, they have ancestor worship. But all of us here in America don't look to our ancestors enough. Most of us in this country probably can't tell you anything more than two, three generations of the people but here's the thing, seven generations ago, if they didn't exist, you would not either. We are our ancestors' greatest dreams, wildest dreams. So I think what Jesus' genealogy can teach us today is that we are the product of those who've come before. Greater than that, we are the products of God's promises. Take hope in that. Your mere existence is a testimony to God. The fact that you're here, living and breathing, is a testimony to God. You may not have the perfect genealogy like Jesus did, but we all have a history. We all have a story. And all of us are only here because God is good. Because God is faithful. Because God has been good and faithful and true and love and mercy and compassion, not just to you, but for every ancestor who lives to make you you. So in light of that, I want to invite you to do something this week. You may not know your physical family tree, but I think all of us, if we spend some time on this, can make a spiritual family tree. And what I mean by that is I want you to just make a list. You know, you can go online, you can download, you can literally Google family tree and print out a template. Or you can just make a list. Who are the people who invested in you spiritually to get you here? Who are the people who introduced you to Jesus Christ? Who are the people who modeled Jesus for you? Who are the people who taught you about Jesus? Who are the people in your life right now that's helping encourage you, pray for you, lift you up? Because not only are we our physical ancestors' wildest dreams, we're also our spiritual ancestors' wildest dreams. I talked to a mentor about a week ago, and I was shocked because he said to me, I remember you when you were 14, and I couldn't dream that you'd be doing what you're doing now. And I was like, me too. <laughs> but I think that's an important story for all of us, because the people who took you to Sunday school, the people who invited you over to the house for dinner, the people who prayed for you for years that you didn't know about, when you grow in the Lord, when God works in your story, you give them hope because it's not just your physical ancestors. It's all those people who spiritually poured into you. You are their wildest dream too. So I want you to make a chart this week of all the people who've invested in you spiritually and give thanks to God for them. And maybe even do something crazy like give them a call or a text message or a FaceTime and just tell them thank you for investing in me. Because I would not be here. I would not see Jesus as clearly. I would not hold on to the Father as tightly. I would not hear the Spirit as clearly if it wasn't for you. I am here because of the work that God did in you and through you for me. You are your spiritual ancestors' wildest dreams. That's what Jesus' genealogy can remind us. The last two things I want us to do is to remember 
Whether we look at your physical family tree, genealogy, or your spiritual family tree, there's a silent partner that's only silent because we have to train our eyes to see him. We have to remember that he is the one moving and working. And that silent partner is God. I can't tell you who existed in my family line 14 generations ago, but God can. I can't tell you all the people who've ever prayed for me, who are praying for me now, who will pray for me, but God can. And I want us to not just be, it's like the same thing I said with Thanksgiving, right? All the people are like, give thanks. To who? For what? It's the same thing that applies to our spiritual and our physical ancestors. Give thanks to God for them. Give thanks to God for the work they poured in. Give thanks to God for being that silent partner who's been faithful. Our generation, our culture, our identities are so wrapped up in us as individuals. But you are more than meets the eye. You exist because a lot of other people existed before. You know Jesus clearly and hold on to the Father more tightly and listen to the Spirit more easily because of so many people who've invested in you. Give thanks to God for writing your story. And the last thing I want us to do this week is you just focus on one thing, anything that gives you hope and give thanks to God for that. There's a lot of people who are struggling. I'm reminded, you know, I think when I got into ministry, I used to like the holiday season. Then I got into ministry and I was like, ooh, this is hard, right? There's so many people that it's not just 2020. It's not just this virus that won't relent. It's not just the isolation and the, 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 the loneliness. There's many people who this time of the year is the hardest. So if you have one thing that gives you hope, I want you to think about it, meditate, and give thanks to God for it. And then I want to do what Matthew asked us to do. Let that hope bubble inside of us, build strongly in us, and then bubble out of us. And I want you to think about a creative way to give someone else hope this week. Because we all need the encouragement. We all need the prayers. We all need the hope. And if Jesus is the God of hope, and if Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, and if Jesus has been faithful and good and true to you, let that hope in God live inside of you, grow inside of you, bubble out so your world can see it and feel it and know it. I'd like to invite up Pastor Hannah and the worship team. Uh, we're going to be closing by singing this song, Hope for Everyone. And I thought this was such a fitting way to end because I think that's the essence of the hope that Jesus brings. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for me. It's for our world. It's for all the generations that's come. It's for all the generations alive. It's for all the generations to come. In Jesus, there's hope for everyone. Let's stand and sing together. I'd like to invite up Pastor Carmen and Pastor Woody will be up here to pray for you. If there's anything you want to respond to in the sermon or anything you got going on, please come up. We'd love to pray for you. But as we stand and sing this song, may we be reminded that Jesus' story is not just Israel's story. It's our story too. Because in Jesus, we have hope. And the hope that we have is not just for me. It's not just for you. It's for all of us. Let's stand and sing Hope for Everyone.
Psalm to me. We join with the generations, not only in Jesus' story, but in our lives by saying, in Jesus, we wait on the promise. 
In Jesus, we wait for the one who lights the darkness. In Jesus, we're reminded that heaven always comes down. But in Jesus and through us in the spirit, God's glory and God's kingdom can come. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. That he's not only the Messiah of Israel, but he's the Savior of the world. That he's not only the God of this universe, but he took on flesh and blood and came to live in skin. Lord, we thank you that you are our hope realized. We thank you that you are our hope. All of our hope is in you. So, Lord, we pray now that the hope we have in Jesus, the one who's been faithful to not only us, but the generations of our people, the one who's been faithful to generations of people who poured into us, that that hope that we have in him may so grow inside of us that we can be bold enough to share with our world. So, Lord, give us strength. Give us mercy. Give us grace. Give us love. But give us hope this morning so that we are filled to share your hope with the world. God, I thank you that in Jesus there's hope for everyone. And I pray that every one of us lives in that hope. In your holy and precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you all.